Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Or was it from you that the Word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. Our Father, we want to take these commands from you seriously. We know that you're concerned about how we worship and how we worship in the corporate gathering of the church. And we want to to obey the principles that we see today. And so I just pray your Holy Spirit would come upon us, that we would listen with humble ears, that we would be corrected where we need to be corrected, and that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And we pray this all for the glory of Jesus, our wonderful Savior and Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know about your neighborhood, but one of the things our neighborhood was doing during the lockdown period was howling every night like a pack of wolves. We would go out. Our neighborhood sort of started this. And uh, at 8 o'clock every night, we would all go out and howl. And it was sort of a way to demonstrate support for the frontline workers in the pandemic, uh, medical uh, people and other people, other professions. So 8 o'clock every night, we would go outside and howl along with our neighbors. Even our dog got into it, which was kind of a, a, a highlight for us. It was something sort of fun we looked forward to every day as we're all stuck inside. Kind of a fun thing to do in solidarity with our neighbors and our community. Well, one particular evening, my son went outside about 20 minutes early and started howling. I was in my office and I looked down at the clock and it said 7.40. What is he doing? This is embarrassing. And it's very annoying. Please stop doing that. It's not 8 o'clock yet. You see, something that was totally appropriate at a certain time was a good thing. It was edifying for everybody. It was fun. It brought us all together in a shared experience with our neighbors and support and unity. But when done at the wrong time and out of order, it had the opposite effect. It was still edifying for him. It was fun for him. But for the rest of us and our neighbors, it was not edifying. It was annoying. And it was confusing. People, I'm sure, like me, were looking at their watches, looking at their clocks. Is it 8 o'clock already? I think even our dog was confused. (laughs) In order for the howling to be edifying, he needed to follow the order that was established. Today we're continuing In 1 Corinthians 14, where the Apostle Paul gives instructions on orderly, edifying worship. And among the spiritual gifts that edify the church, he's been concentrating particularly on certain speaking gifts. People can be gifted in these things and edify themselves, but if they're not using their gifts in the right way, the orderly way, it will not edify the other worshipers, which is the purpose of using the gift in the church to edify, build up others. There's a time to speak and a time to be silent. Like my son howling at the wrong time, using the gift improperly will cause confusion and disorder in the church and not be beneficial to the other worshipers and not be worshiped according to the Lord's command. In our passage today, 
Paul takes us through several situations where a gifted person needs to be silent as the Lord has commanded in order to preserve proper order in the church, God's design for the church and edify or build up other worshipers. I invite you to follow along in your sermon outline as we go through the passage this morning. So let's look at number one, the silence of gifted tongues speakers. Verse 28. Let's read together verses 28, 26, I'm sorry, through 28. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Here we see people contribute to the Corinthians' worship in multiple varied ways. Someone can sing, can sing, maybe, and they lead in a hymn. Someone may teach a lesson from the Old Testament, the scripture that they had at the time. Someone gives a revelation or prophecy, a word from the Lord. Someone speaks in tongues, which means they spoke in a language that they didn't learn. Um, and they or someone else, with the interpretation gift, would interpret that language. And all these speaking gifts that the Holy Spirit had given the Corinthians, to edify each other. Now, we talked at length about prophecy in tongues last week. So if you missed that, I refer you back to that message for details about those gifts and and different views on their relevance today. But the key for using these gifts in the church, Paul says, is that it be edifying to others. He says, let all things be done for building up of other worshipers. So, in these first verses... We see that those with the gift of speaking in tongues are commanded to be silent in certain situations. Like we saw last week, Paul reminds them, even if someone's gifted with a tongue or language, same word, there's no, and there's no interpreter, they should be silent and not use their gift. The overarching pattern here that you'll see and how I've structured the outline is that just because someone has a gift doesn't necessarily mean it's appropriate to use it in the gathered church, depending on the situation. Paul tells us in each instance what is appropriate. Certain situations call for silence. In this case, the tongue speaker is to be silent, first if there's no interpreter. Also, even if there is an interpreter, Paul caps it at two to three people speaking in tongues during the service to preserve order. A potential third or fourth person is to remain silent, even if they're gifted in this. Each person speaks in turn. You wait for someone else to finish, or you just speak to yourself and to God. Now, listen, again, I want you to see this very important principle throughout this passage. The command to be silent has nothing to do with whether they're gifted or not. Okay, Like my son's howling, the silence is about edification and order. It's about doing things properly as the Lord commands for the building up of others. Let's look at number two. The silence of gifted prophets. Let's look at verse 29 and read together. Let two or three prophets speak and let others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one 
so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Okay, here's someone who's exercising the gift of prophecy. Let me briefly summarize what this is in case you missed last week, but again, I refer you to that message. A revelation, as Paul calls it, is when someone speaks for God. Some, something has, has been revealed to them by God for him or her to say. Now, as I mentioned last week, some very good scholars disagree about this interpretation of prophecy. They think prophecy in the New Testament is different than it was in the Old Testament. That the words are not not necessarily from God, and they can be wrong about certain things. And I refer to last week's message where we covered that in depth. To summarize our position, I believe prophecy is better understood as infallible, like it was in the Old Testament. In Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul says the apostles and prophets were the foundation of the New Testament church. The Lord reveals mysteries about Jesus, previously unknown, through the apostles and prophets. Okay, so because they're this foundation, true apostles and prophets, true prophets, cannot speak for God and be wrong or make mistakes. That would mean the foundation is faulty. Now remember, and this is important, this is all happening before the New Testament was formed. So unlike us today, they didn't have the 27 books of the authoritative New Testament that we can read and teach from. They didn't have that. So what they had is what, they called the old, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures as their Scripture that they taught from. They had some form of the Apostles' doctrine about Jesus Christ and how he relates to the Old Testament, And likewise, prophets who also speak the words of God about Jesus. That's how the the church service was was working in some fashion. In other words, those with the gift of prophecy then in Corinth functioned much like the New Testament scriptures do today. Someone reading the New Testament aloud in our church service today is the closest thing we have to what prophecy was at that time. They spoke God's words to the congregation revealing things about Jesus and encouraging the believers in the faith. Now, over time, we're not exactly sure how this worked, but probably over time when the canon of Scripture was completed and circulating among the churches, and and the the apostles and, and prophets in this foundational sense phased out because there was no more need for someone to speak the words of God because they had the whole word of God in the Scripture, Old and New Testament. But back then in Corinth, people were still speaking as prophets, the word of God. So back to our passage. During this worship time, a prophet would give a revelation from God. But these prophecies need to be tested. They need, the the, the prophets need to be weighed. This is what it means in verse 29. Others in the congregation were to weigh what is said in the prophecy. The prophets and prophecies are weighed or tested. Now what does this mean? Well, let me read a couple of scriptures. In 1 John 4.1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, Do not quench the spirit and do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So from what we can gather, prophecies were tested against the scripture of the Old Testament 
and against the apostles' doctrine about Jesus Christ. Thistleton says this might have included asking questions about the prophet's theology, maybe even questions about the prophet's lifestyle, as we see it's obviously correlated in 1 John. They were seeking to discern the prophet if they were from God, weighing what was said in terms of theological trustworthiness. Again, a prophecy is not like teaching, where they're they have a certain text that they're expounding. That's teaching. It's always listed as a separate gift in the New Testament. Prophecy is something spontaneous that God revealed to them, not prepared, revealed to them, and they spoke it. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of room for confusion and potential abuse with this kind of gift if it's not done in an orderly way. Or if things are said that are out of line with the scripture or the apostles' doctrine. That's why it was critical that they weigh these things. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another, another prophet sitting there, the fir- let the first be silent. For you can, all, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Paul says if another person gets a revelation, the first prophet should be silent. In other words, they're, they're to yield to each other. No one dominates the worship service, in other words. They need to be silent. Again, all for edification, verse 31, so that all may learn and be encouraged. Now this is an important verse, verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Paul is saying, you can control your actions. Even if you have the gift of prophecy, you can stop. You can be silent. The one, the gift is subject to the one with the gift. The usage of the prophecy or the speaking gift is subject to the control of the prophets, as it says in the NIV. So you can control what's happening. It's not like being filled with the Spirit is not like some kind of demon possession where you can't control what's happening to you. No. Self-control, of course, Paul says, is a fruit, an evidence of the Holy Spirit. So you can control what you're doing and saying. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You can stop, you can be silent. The use of the gift is subject to the control of the person with the gift. And this is instructive that the very next verse, he says, for or because, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Life in the spirit is not out of control and disorderly, but peaceful and orderly. When someone says they've lost control and the Holy Spirit's responsible, they're not telling the truth. And it's not just extreme charismatic churches where this abuse can happen. This happens anytime, frankly, someone says, well, the Holy Spirit was on me and I couldn't stop, or whatever the case might be. This verse refutes that idea. You can, in fact, control the use of your gift. So note again, the command to be silent here has nothing to do with whether you're gifted or not. They have the gift of prophecy, presumably, but there are situations where it's right to remain silent. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean you should speak. It's about doing things orderly as the Lord commands for the building up of others. Okay, let's look at number three, the silence of gifted women. Let's start in the second uh, part of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. 
If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, Paul addresses women here specifically. And the big question, of course, is what does he mean when he says that women should keep silent in the churches? Now, no matter what view responsible scholars take on this verse, everyone agrees this cannot mean absolute silence. Certainly, women can sing hymns along with the men, for instance. And I think they were doing more than that in Corinth. As we saw in chapter 11... It also seems clear that women were praying and prophesying in the gathered assembly, so long as they were demonstrating the distinction, Paul says, between men and women, which at least at that time meant covering their heads. Now, as we discussed back at that passage, this is debated among people that we respect, whether or not that was in fact in the gathered church in chapter 11, that women were praying and prophesying, but... uh, If women are encouraged to prophesy in the church, uh, it seems clear to me, I'll just say it, it seems clear to me that that chapters 11 through here in 14, this is the gathered church, and that women were praying and prophesying. But if they were encouraged to prophesy in the church, then why would Paul command silence here? Well, let's look at the context. Look back at verse 29 with me. Paul says, let two or three prophets speak Let the others weigh what is said. Paul is addressing the weighing or testing of the prophecies. Remember, prophets were tested by others in the congregation and were perhaps asked doctrinal questions about what they were saying. The prophecies were tested against the Hebrew scriptures and most especially against the apostles' doctrine that they had about the Lord Jesus. So, Following a number of good scholars, I think what Paul is prohibiting here is that women participate in this activity of weighing the prophecies, the testing or questioning of the prophets. If they have questions, Paul says, they should ask their husbands at home. Now, possibly, Paul is especially concerned about the wife of a husband who prophesies, questioning him publicly. I guess that would seem to undermine his headship. But I think it makes sense in general that Paul would prohibit women from this exercise because it is very consistent with what he says in 1 Timothy 2. In that passage where the context is clearly the gathered church, Paul says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We will come back to that passage later But for now, it's enough to consider that Paul consistently, it appears, prohibits women from teaching over men in the church and from exercising authority over men in the church. Remember, teaching is is a different gift than prophecy. Testing someone's prophecy doctrinally or questioning the prophet against the authority of God's word would fall into this category, I think, of what Paul prohibits women to do. As D.A. Carson says... This oral weighing of prophecies or testing of the prophet is under the umbrella of the teaching and authority role in 1 Timothy 2. So exercising authority in the testing of prophecies and evaluating the prophets would not be consistent with the proper role of women in the church according to God's good design. Verse 34, they're not permitted to speak, but instead, Paul says, They're to be in submission, as the law also says. 
Now, some scholars argue that this was a special situation in Corinth where maybe a handful of women were, were out of line. Um, but for at least two reasons, I don't think that interpretation works. First, Paul explicitly says in verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints. So Corinth is not an exception. Secondly, verse 34 it says, as the law also says. So, so the foundation of Paul's command here is the law, the Old Testament, not a cultural situation in Corinth. So let me summarize now. Just like in the previous passages, these women may well be gifted for the task of testing prophecies doctrinally. They may be highly gifted in leadership, in teaching, in discernment. But in this context of authority in the corporate assembly, they're to remain silent. Again, not about giftedness. It's about doing things orderly with God's good design as the Lord commands for the building up of others. Let's look at our final passage this morning, number four in your outline. The silence of the disobedient. Verse 36, please read with me. And see if you can notice any apostolic sarcasm here. <laughs> Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Let me read a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson's the message, which I think captures this well. Do you think everything revolves around you? If any one of you thinks God has something for you to say or has inspired you to do something, pay close attention to what I have written. This is the way the master wants it. If you don't play by these rules, God can't use you. Sorry. I think that captures the spirit of what Paul is saying. My daughter might say that Paul flexes his apostleship here. Basically, he says, I speak for the Lord Jesus. This isn't optional principles that I'm giving you. Consider, that the, consider the, the Gospel of John. The Holy Spirit's role is to glorify the Son of God. Okay? No one truly filled with the Holy Spirit is going to directly contradict the command of the Lord Jesus. So if you're not going to listen to these instructions, Paul says, then you're not going to be recognized. People will not look to you at all. Now keep in mind, those in Corinth are puffed up. Okay? They desperately want people to recognize them. But if they think they're above the Lord's commands, their influence will be silenced. As Gardner says, the irony is obvious. The very thing they most wanted is to be recognized as mature spiritual people. The very thing they will be denied by the community. Here's the deal. The Lord cares about how we worship. We see in Paul's refrain yet again in this last verse. All things should be done decently and in order. Okay, let's, let's consider some application for us today. This is number five in your outline. The first point here, letter A, faithful worship. How can we be edifying, orderly, and submissive? It's admittedly difficult to reconstruct exactly what a worship service looked like in Corinth. There's a lot we don't know, frankly. So we need to keep our uh, conclusions tentative in some way. The one thing we know for certain 
is they had a season of spontaneous worship. At least part of the service was not planned ahead of time. In terms of who would participate, someone might offer a hymn, another might speak in a language to be interpreted, another might prophesy, someone might have a lesson from the Old Testament. Paul's concern is that this time of worship be orderly and edifying, even though there's a spontaneous element to it. Verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Verse 40, all things should be done decently and in order. As Garland says, the Holy Spirit is not like a ping pong ball careening from one person to another, creating mass confusion. So there's a necessary balance between spontaneity and order. And certainly one strong line of continuity between what we can, what we can draw from, from Paul's instruction to the Corinthians to what we can learn at Orchard today is what we do in our open time. Uh, during the Lord's Supper. Unlike most gospel churches that we know of, we have an entire service dedicated to the Lord's Supper that we just had. And during that service, we didn't today because of the baptism, but during that service, we usually have a season or two of spontaneous worship, an unplanned portion, where there may be maybe prayers, hymns, or a, a, a form of teaching where, where thoughts are shared from the Scripture. And there's an age-long tension between these two principles we see here in 1 Corinthians. The tension between orderly worship and spontaneous worship. Uh, some of the old-school Plymouth Brethren churches, they had, they had nothing planned. It was, it was 100% spontaneous. Most churches today are the opposite. They don't have a spontaneous portion at all. Probably because there's so much that can go wrong. I mean, it, think about it. There's so much risk you take, uh, in a sense, when you open it up like we do. But one thing we do as elders for this balance is publish a theme in our bulletin that we can all sort of rally around. The songs are chosen with the theme in mind. Our our, our thoughts during the week as we approach the Lord's table are united around that theme. That's the purpose of publishing that theme ahead of time. Still spontaneous, but directed sort of toward a single passage and sort of unified thought. So one application, we encourage you The Holy Spirit works in order and planning, too, not just in spontaneity. That's one, I didn't have that in my notes, but that's just a a truism. Um, We we encourage you to look at the the worship theme ahead of time. So in your bulletin today, uh, not your uh, message outline, but but your bulletin that was at the Lord's Supper, you can see next week's theme. And you can pray about that and look at the passages as you prepare to worship next week. Related to order... Paul also makes it clear that we need to prioritize edification, the building up of one another. Okay, the, the open time's not to be used selfishly. Okay, it should not be a place where people just flex their spiritual gifts or do things that make them feel good about themselves. Okay, I was told in the early days of LBC, uh, they had someone that you would use that open time to basically preach for a few minutes and then pick it up again the next week. So he had his own little preaching service going, completely out of touch and disconnected from the community. That was done for himself. It wasn't done for the building up of others. So our participation in that open time must be done in a manner that loves others, edifies others, builds up others. Let all things be done for building up, verse 26, so that all may learn and be encouraged, verse 31. As Garland says, Paul does not see tongues and prophecy as a solo performance. A tongue speaker requires an interpreter. 
A prophet requires those who weigh their prophecy. So the church is working together to edify the entire body. So we should think about our participation in that service as something we're doing in partnership with our brothers and sisters. Uh, Though we no longer practice tongues and prophecy in our service, the principle still applies. As someone has thoughts related to a scripture to teach us or a prayer, the Spirit may bring another passage to someone else's mind. We should work to tie things together for the edification of the entire church. And done in turn, let let the first be silent, Paul says. In other words, no one person should dominate. Now, thankfully, and the elders talk about this frequently, we're so thankful and blessed that Orchard have good participation. No one person dominates. But many of us have been in situations or in churches where someone does dominate, and it's miserable. He opens his Bible and never stops talking. Or worse, he doesn't open his Bible and never stops talking. I remember years ago interviewing the late, great Alice Banks about how that open time had changed over the decades she'd been, she'd been at LBC. And she offered some unfiltered thoughts. <laughs> I remember she said something about, uh, you know, we're here to worship the Lord, not listen to them. I wish they'd just pray. Paul says the spirit of the prophet is subject to the control of the prophet. You're in control of the stoppage of your involvement. I remember a man years ago in a, in a different church would, would go way longer than the allotted time and, and basically say, you know, the spirit got a hold of me. I couldn't stop. That's not consistent with what Paul says, is it? The usage of the gift is subject to the person with the gift. Furthermore, self-control is evidence of the Holy Spirit. When you say you can't control, you're not walking by the Spirit. In terms of content, of our teaching or prayer in that open time, we all have blind spots, okay? And it's good to solicit and listen to to feedback of others to ensure that it is edifying. Sometimes my wife tells me, I really didn't understand what you were talking about. And and that's as humbling as that is. It's important to hear. So So ask others. You know, is there anything I can do differently when I teach or when I pray that would be more edifying? We always want to be reflective and ensure it's building up. That's the purpose, encouraging others, not just ourselves. And here's how the rest of us can help. When you hear a prayer or a teaching or a song in that open time that's edifying, tell them, encourage them. Hey, you prayed exactly what I was thinking. Or the scripture you explained really helped me to worship. Or the words to the song you chose today were so appropriate. And let me say again, we love to have many participate in that open time. Ideally, we don't want the same people every time. Now, again, just because we don't have prophecies that we weigh or test today, we should still test everything by the scripture. So please talk to the elders if if there's teaching that you hear in this church or during that open time or anywhere else, even from this pulpit that's unbiblical, we want to hear from you. If there are words to a song that are not edifying or, or worse, unbiblical, please talk to us. You know, Orchard is not a liturgical church, per se, so the songs we sing together basically become our liturgy. So the words are really important. We are, in essence, reciting words of praise and prayer together like a liturgy. We're just singing them. So while we never want to be a critical church, we always want to be a critically thinking 
church. So we all want to be submissive to what the Lord says as Paul instructs. Thistleton says this, God wants orderly worship because it corresponds to his nature. He's an orderly God, not a God of confusion or chaos, but a God of order and peace. So we all need to be submissive to the commands of the Lord in our worship. Finally, let's consider letter B, faithful women, essential, gifted, and submissive. Back in chapter 11, we covered at length, if you remember, Paul's teaching on God's good design. Okay, there's a beautiful complementary relationship between husbands and wives in the family and between men and women in the church, which is going to be our focus today. Men and women have absolute equality in bearing God's image and dignity. There's neither male nor female when it comes to redemptive value. And both have spiritual gifts that are essential to the church. As we saw in, in chapter 12, both edify the body of Christ, 1 Peter 4. Women can be equally or more gifted than men, including in the gifts of leadership and teaching. But there are differences, and those differences are good, and therefore God's glory. Men and women are not interchangeable, despite our cultural message today, if there's such a thing as men and women anymore. Our goal at Orchard is to model these differences faithfully to the glory of God. That's the goal, to be asking questions, to be faithful and submissive to the Lord's teaching on these matters. Now, there are two restrictions I'm going to talk about in 1 Timothy 2 that will help understand sort of the governing principle here as it relates to the silence of women in our passage. Let me read 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Like he did in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul alludes here to the creation order in Genesis 2 for the reasoning. Okay? This is before the fall. That's really important. This is instructive for how men and women are to function in the church. Now, very important here, the context is clearly the local church, as it is in uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul says two things here in 1 Timothy. Women are not to teach Christian doctrine to men in the context of the local church. Number two, women are not to exercise authority directly over men in the context of the local church. Teach and exercise authority are two distinct things, but you can't totally separate them because the teaching that's prohibited is that teaching under the auspices of local church authority. That is to say, under the oversight of the pastor elders. That's why teaching in a home group at Orchard is different than teaching a Bible study at work, for instance. Home group ministry is connected to the elders' oversight. A Bible study at work is not connected with the local church. So we need to be careful. We don't go beyond what Scripture teaches. This goes for teaching and authority. Paul is not saying women cannot have authority over a man at work or in the government. He's talking about the spiritual oversight in the local church. Again, admittedly very difficult to reconstruct exactly what was happening in Corinthian worship. We know they didn't have the New Testament yet, so the teaching was from the Old Testament. They did have the apostles' doctrine in some form, a specific way of reading the Old Testament as it related to Jesus and his kingdom. There was tongues and interpretations. There was prayer and singing. 
And there was prophecy, God speaking directly through prophets and then weighing those prophecies others would do. And I hope you can see why this testing of a prophet or weighing the content of the prophecy in in chapter 14 would fall under the umbrella of what Paul is prohibiting women to do here in 1 Timothy. Because there's both a doctrinal oversight element in the testing and also an authority element to that activity. I do believe, as I mentioned in chapter 11, that women were prophesying in the uh, corporate gathering in Corinth. And I know this is debated among faithful scholars and people we respect, but it seems clear to me that chapter 11 is describing the meeting of the church as it goes into the Lord's Supper and into 14 as well. However, women were not to be weighing prophecies, testing prophets. They were not to be teaching men in the church from the scripture. They were not to be pastor elders. So what does all of this mean for women today? Well, as you can imagine, there is much debate and controversy. I'm going to try to address this in two categories. Activities outside the local church and then ministry activities within orchard. Because again, the restrictions in 1 Timothy on teaching and authority are those functions connected to local church ministry. So, first outside the local church. A Bible study at work led by a woman in no way puts the students under the authority of that woman's local church. There is nothing in these texts to prohibit that kind of teaching in my mind. What about evangelism? Consider consider Mary Magdalene, the first to spread the news of the resurrection to men. Unbelievers are disconnected from local church authority. There's nothing prohibiting women teaching unbelievers about the Bible and about Jesus. What about conferences, parachurch organizations? These are grayer areas because, in many cases, the organizations exist to reinforce the pattern of the churches they support. That's why Camp Elam, for instance, follows this practice. What about teaching in Bible colleges or seminaries? Again, they may, certain seminaries may reinforce a church they're connected to. But I would argue there's nothing in the scripture prohibiting a woman from teaching in a Bible college or seminary because that teaching is not connected to local church authority over the student. Related to this, authors of books on biblical studies and theologies are not tied to the pastor elders watching over the souls of the reader. There's an Australian biblical scholar and author that I found profoundly helpful for this very sermon, a brilliant woman from whom I learned much. One of my favorite podcasts that I listen to is Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, an outstanding teacher. I learned so much from her and her questions of other teachers. We've already mentioned leadership outside the church. There's nothing biblically preventing a woman from maximizing her leadership in these contexts, whether the CEO of a company or president of the United States. Personally, some of the best bosses I've had, best leaders I've seen, have been women. So that's outside the local church. Certainly, godly people debate these things. I get that. What about inside? What about situations to which Paul speaks directly? What about orchard ministries? Some decisions are much easier and clearer than others based on these texts, of course, but many, if not most of the time, wisdom's required. And including the wisdom about Paul's instruction about avoiding confusion. 
Okay, and we, I'll just say the elders may be wrong in some, where some of these lines are drawn. We, we think about these things frequently. Here's our goal. We want to be faithful to the scripture. I mean, we want to make biblical decisions. And let me say up front that if you have questions about any of these things or concerns, please contact me. I'd love to talk to you. Uh, we want to hear from you if you're confused or if you disagree. It's okay. Godly people disagree on these things. It's okay. Our governing principle as elders of Orchard from the scriptures for Timothy 2 in particular is this. This is our governing principle. Where there is an element of authority or teaching over men in the context of an Orchard ministry, we ask the men to do it. They're accountable to the pastor elders who are ultimately responsible. So preaching and teaching the whole assembly is perhaps the clearest, but also leading home groups, leading worship music, participating in certain aspects of our open time during the Lord's Supper, because these activities frequently involve teaching the Scripture. We believe it falls into the category that Paul is prohibiting, according to God's good design. Again, nothing to do with giftedness or ability. It has everything to do with our desire to be faithful to the divine order. And some of these things are admittedly less clear than others, and wisdom's required. Teaching youth is another example. There's no verse that says when a boy is 13 or 18 or 21, then he's considered a man, and at that moment falls into this category where it's no longer appropriate to be under a woman's authority or teaching in the local church. Now, personally, I can say this truthfully, I don't know, (laughs) because the scripture doesn't say. But as leaders of Orchard, we don't have that option. It would be way easier to say, well, we don't take a position. But as uncomfortable as it is, we have to make a decision, one way or another, on an exact age. So our current policy is that at junior high and above, we split the group by gender if women are teaching. Now let me zoom out for a minute because I don't want to lose sight of the big picture here. Just because women are not to teach men in local church ministry doesn't mean their teaching gifts should not be developed or they shouldn't study theology at the highest possible level. This is an area of particular passion for me because my area of pastoral oversight and responsibility at Orchard is not only preaching and teaching, but also women's ministry. And it's my firm conviction that women should be every bit as eager to learn Bible doctrine and theology as men. It is my personal burden that women love and study theology. And for the past year or so, I've been working with the Connecting Women leadership on some ideas for how we can do this. And also leadership development. We had a great class last year with 15 to 20 women at Orchard a studying biblical leadership facilitated by the elders. It's every bit as important for women to learn leadership and teaching as men. We obviously have our Connecting Women Bible Studies at Orchard and other things, but there's something I want to zero in on that I think is far too often overlooked. And I'm not minimizing the pulpit ministry when I say this. This is a true statement about my personal study. Most of the visible fruit to me from my personal reading the Bible and theology is manifested in one-on-one discipleship with men. More than Sunday morning sermons. When you're meeting one-on-one, that's when everything is firing. 
Drawing on everything you've been reading, everything you're learning can be tailored to one person and one situation. You can speak directly into their Bible questions, directly into their life. I love that. And it's not an exaggeration that I see more fruit from that than things that make it into my sermons. And here's the deal. Women are especially gifted in one-on-one settings. So please, ladies, seek individual lives to be impacted by the Holy Spirit through the fruits of your own study and push them to go theologically as deep as possible. This is the Lord's will for you. And of course, those of you who are mothers, I know this is so devalued and mocked in our society and Satan's lies, but teaching your children is critical. Like many of you, I learned the gospel from my mother. (laughs) Listen to John Wesley. John Wesley, one of the greatest thinkers in Christian history. I learned more about Christianity from my mother than from all the theologians in England. So please don't minimize. It's not fair that you're here today. Please don't minimize the impact of teaching your children. You know, maybe some of you weren't blessed like me as a child to have parents who loved Jesus and told them about the gospel. It's my privilege to tell you the good news today. You're a sinner like me. You desperately need to be saved. And God, in his love for you, sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life that you could not live. None of us could. And to die the death, taking hell for you, And he was raised in victory and reigns at the right hand of the Father and will come back so we can be with him forever. You can be saved if you turn from your sin, if you turn from your self-centeredness, your self-reliance, your self-dependence, and lean fully into the finished work of Christ. Would you do that today? Would you trust in Jesus? The good news is about him. In closing, let me just say how thankful we are for mothers And for faithful women in our church, we have some great students of the word here. Some great thinkers and leaders. Gifted teachers of adults, teachers of youth, teachers of children. And we always want more. Ladies, we want you to flourish at Orchard because you are vital to the ministry here. Your voice is essential to the well-being of our church. And we praise God for you. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we're so grateful for your word. We would be so lost on how to do church, how to live our lives without your word. We're so thankful that you've given it to us with clarity. I just pray that these principles would be clear to us as we flesh these things out in our own lives, in our own church. And I thank you for the ladies here. I thank you for the godly mothers who teach their children the gospel. I thank you for ladies that teach adults and think through theology and exemplify leadership to others, outside the church and inside the church. We just pray your blessing upon them for Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen.